The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Mark 14, that's where we're going to be. It's been a while, right, um, for Wednesday nights. My, myself in particular haven't done a lot of Wednesday night teaching. So, someone asked me re- recently, like, have you just given up on Wednesday nights? Are you not doing Wednesday nights anymore? And um, that's not true. Um, it was a blessing. It, it's a blessing just in general to have um, the, the people that we have here and to be able to, to rely on someone else to be able to teach and not have to carry all that myself. Man, what a blessing that is. And I think that's good. I think that's biblical to be able to hear from some different people. And, and I can remember when I was like Sam, um, you know, just the assistant pastor who felt that I had something to say and wanted to teach and wanted to grow and learn in teaching and then never got an opportunity to teach. And so um, it's a privilege to be able to do that. So we do intentionally rotate through teaching on Wednesday nights here. Just so you know, if you're new to us, you will not get me every week and that's not going to change. Um, but sometimes um, that's more rare than others, mainly because, for example, into December, um, I was heading into finals with school and all that kind of stuff, and so um, it was just a difficult and pretty heavy load season. So it's good to be back with you. Tonight, we'll be here in Mark chapter 14. Next week, I'll be with you again, because next week is our, um, that special gathering they're going to be having with all the other churches. There's, there's uh, four other churches that will be joining with us here next week. Uh, Medford Naz, First Baptist Church, uh, Westminster Presbyterian, and uh, who am I forgetting? Rogue Valley. I always forget Rogue Valley. Don't tell them that when they get here, but I always forget that. Um, And so we're going to be worshiping together. We're going to have the full band here, and we're going to kind of crank it up a little bit and just worship Jesus together. And then um, the the five pastors, myself and the other four guys, are going to be up on stage, and we're going to have kind of a roundtable about um, what does it mean to bring the gospel to Medford, specifically into Medford? What does it look like for us and for the greater body of Christ, not just for a little church, but how do we as Christians... um, change the valley with the gospel or allow the gospel to change the valley is a better way of saying it. And we'll have some refreshments and stuff, just for opportunity to get to know our brothers and sisters from some other churches. And um, the pastors in particular, they're good friends of mine, good friends of mine. Um, We had lunch today and just really enjoy um, being around those guys. And I think you're going to really be blessed um, to hear what some of them have to say. They are some solid Bible teachers and some smart men, and I learn a lot from them. And so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be next week, and then I'll be back with you again the next week, and then Sam, and we'll just kind of rotate around and all that kind of stuff. So so that's kind of the plan. Um, If you're new here with us, our goal here on Wednesday nights is discipleship-oriented. So in other words, on Wednesday nights, we intentionally teach um, almost assuming, as much as our conscience will let us get away with anyway, almost assuming everyone in here knows Jesus, desires to follow Jesus, um, maybe has been trying to follow Jesus for a long time. Like it, it, it is a, okay, it's different than Sunday. Our goal on Wednesday night is, so how do we walk these out? What does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And it's more study-oriented than sermon-oriented. That's usually the way that that flows. And today in particular, that is the case. Um, when I saw that this is the text that we were at, I was excited because I love to preach this story, Um, though I love it better now because I would have preached it differently last time that I did than I will tonight. Now I really like this particular passage. And so I I got up really early this morning and I was working on a whole lot of stuff literally for like three hours or so. I come in here, it's like 8.30, Sam comes in and he's like, so what are you going to talk about today? And I'm like, well, I'm talking about this. And he's like, oh, I already taught that. I was like, oh. You're kidding me. I got to throw three and a half hours of work away. I was all geared up to do this. Now we're going to the next thing, and I don't, I don't like that one, and I'd rather leave that for Sam. And uh, 
But then I was like, all right, go get me your notes. And he didn't teach any of this stuff. So we're going to clean up what Sam missed. This is what we're going to do tonight, right? (laughs) So we're going to leave the other stuff for later. It's a discipleship opportunity for Sam. No, no, Sam actually was teaching about the foretelling of Peter's denial, and he did look forward to talk about how that actually played out. Today we're going to talk about the actual breakdown going through this story of Peter's denial. So where we left off, Jesus has been arrested. They came and got him in Gethsemane. Um, They led him away. He was shackled. He was carried away. And now he is currently on trial. He's in the first of three different trials, the first one being in Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas is who? The high priest of Israel. And so he's being tried illegally at night in the house of the high priest of Israel in hopes that they can find him guilty of blasphemy so that then they can go to the Roman authorities because they can't put anyone to death themselves. That right is not given to them, it's held by Rome. So if they can find him guilty of blasphemy, which requires a death sentence, then they'll go to Rome and try to prove why he needs to be killed. But their ultimate goal is to kill Jesus. This is what they're doing. So he's on trial in the first of three different trials he's going to go through in a very short period of time. Now the question that Mark addresses at this particular point is, where are the disciples the whole time all this stuff's going on? I mean, up until this point, the disciples have been major players in the story, major players in the story. I mean, even just in the last week of this particular narrative, there's the triumphal entry where all the followers of Jesus are around him and they're making their way, you guys know, into Jerusalem and they're shouting, Hosanna, the Messiah, Hosanna. And remember the religious leaders say, tell your disciples to shut up already. And he says, I I tell you, if I told them to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. You remember that story? Um, I was just telling a friend of mine about that this week, and I gave them one of them. When we were in Israel, we walked down that very path where they would have walked to shouting Hosanna up into the gate, and we took rocks home. We figured they're shouting rocks, and they would have been anyway, so that was kind of cool. I don't know if that's legal or not, but it's cool. We brought rocks home. Anyway, um, so, so that's going on. So the disciples are there. Then you have this week of really intense teaching. It's kind of like the parting teachings for Jesus and his disciples. He really spends some intentional time with these guys. And he deals with some pretty hard stuff. And he's warning them, man, hard times are coming. Don't lose hope. Keep faith in me. Um, trust me. Believe in me. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Stay grafted to me so that you don't wither when these hard times come. Some very intentional teaching. And then, of course, there's the Last Supper, right? The Bible says Jesus loved them to the end. He humbles himself. He washes their feet. They share this special meal. And even together in that meal, Jesus still says, man, there's difficult times coming. Persecution's coming. I'm going to die. I mean, he's still telling them. It's a very heavy thing as he's around these guys and he's teaching to these guys. And then, of course, they go to Gethsemane and he tells the guys, you guys pray here. No, you guys probably, I can't trust you alone. So you come with me and you come a little closer and you guys hang here. And then I'm going to go over here and pray. And you guys just pray with me, okay? And then you guys know how it works. Three different times. He comes back, they're asleep. He's like, wake up. Come on, guys, please. Can you not pray a little bit? Goes back again. It's this three-time thing that occurs there in Gethsemane. And so three times again, over and over, they fail. And then the torches are seen. And here comes the soldiers. And the, the arrest happens. Peter comes up with a sword. Who gave Peter a sword? Like, how did that guy get a sword? You know what? It makes me think, actually, though. Because remember, 
Peter's the one that Jesus is speaking to, and Peter says, you're not going to die. No way. We'll never let that happen to you. And remember, Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. I wonder if Peter really bought into that. I mean, maybe Peter was carrying a sword the whole time. Well, we'll see about that. I'm not going to let nothing happen to my boy. Maybe. I don't know. Speculation. Interesting to think through. But there's a sword. There's a streaker. There's that one weird verse here in Mark, if you haven't seen it again, there's just this guy and he's naked, you can figure that out on your own. And then now, where are they now? Where are the disciples now? In the time between the arrest of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, when all the apostles and disciples come and realize that he's risen again, there's not a lot given to us about what's going on with these guys. I mean, we, we know that some have scattered and hidden. Um, we know that some people, disciples or followers of Jesus, have just thought, well, I guess he wasn't the one. Remember the road to Emmaus, the men that are leaving now? They're figuring, well, I guess he wasn't the one after all, and they're going home. We know that John ends up at the crucifixion, um, but we don't get a whole lot of detail about specific events that are happening with regards to the followers or specifically the disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe the most detailed story or account that we get of anyone regarding a disciple of Jesus in this time between the arrest and the resurrection is today's story. It's the story about Peter. Now, remember, the book of Mark is written by John Mark. And most theologians and historians agree the writings of John Mark in the book of Mark that we're looking at are based on whose writings and testimony? Peter's. This is Peter's story telling what happened concerning him in this particular story. And here's what I love. I love the raw truth of Scripture. I love the raw truth. If we were making up a religion, if we were making up a faith we would never write things the way the Bible writes about its founding fathers, those, those who are, if you will, the, the early leaders of our particular faith. We would never write the things that we write about them. I mean, the Bible is brutally honest about their weaknesses and failures and sins. If we were creating Christianity today from scratch, we wouldn't do this. And if you're like, well, we might do this. No, we wouldn't, because look how we deal with our own founding fathers. We didn't want to record the weaknesses. We don't want to talk about slave owners. We don't want to talk about any of those things. And some of our history has even been revisionist with regards to some of them because we want to honor and protect the people who really, if you will, this nation has been founded on. There's, there's good reason for that. But how much more with a faith that we're asking you to put all of your hope and all of your belief in? We would never write the way they write about these men. But the Bible is incredibly raw. Every single person in the Bible is a wreck. It's just what, well, all but one, right? All of them. Like the Bible is brutally honest. Adam, right out of the gate, has it made. He lives in paradise. The weather's amazing. No pain. The animals are friendly. He's naked with his wife. Not a bad gig. Ruins it. Ruins it. Throws his wife under the bus. Hides from God. Disaster. His son becomes a murderer. I mean, it just goes and goes from there. Abraham throws his wife, not, I almost said throws her under the bus. That's not true. Bails on his wife and gives her away to another man to save his own hide. Twice does that. I mean, think of guys like Joseph, prideful little spoiled brat. That's Joseph. Um, others, Moses, he was a murderer. He was a coward. And he was short-tempered, impatient leader for sure. There's David, adulterous murderer with occasional anger issues. Read some of those precatory psalms we've talked about. Some of those are like, dude, relax, man. You need a nap. Some of them are bad. Paul, 
And Paul was mass murdering and persecuting Christians left and right. These are the people that are, if you will, the founders, or at least the ones the Bible uses to present and declare and bring to us, especially in the case of the disciples. They are the early church fathers. They're the pillars that take the gospel out and, if you will, start the church as we know it. And the Bible is so raw about what's going on. These guys in particular, the apostles, are never in danger of being glamorized, ever. Like right out the gate, they're just screw-ups, all of them. And, and, and Jesus, you, you, you get this sense where if we didn't know his sinfulness or his sinlessness, we would wonder if he is just getting completely frustrated with these guys sometimes is the way he has to deal with them and teach them over and over and over. I mean, these guys are a mess from day one, all of them. So we're never in danger of feeling that they're like somehow glamorized and don't have weaknesses. And out of all of them, Peter especially, Peter especially, and even in his own writings, if I was writing my story, I don't know that I would include the things Peter includes, but he does. And he would have opportunity to get away with it if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, I should say, inspiring these things, because a lot of these things happen when no one else is around, or few people are around. So you have the story, for example, of the transfiguration. Here he is in front of God and and, uh, Moses and Elijah in this awesome display of God's power, and Jesus, this lightning, if you will, it says, comes forth from him, And, and Peter's there, and he ruins the whole thing. He ruins it. Says it's good for us to be here. You guys want some tents? And the whole thing shows over. God says to him, this is the one who should be talking, my son. He's the one to listen to. Shows over, ruins it, back down the hill they go. Or I've already mentioned you have the story where Jesus talks about the persecution he's going to go through. Peter says, no way, that's not going to happen. And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me who? Satan. I don't know that I would want to tell too many people that Jesus called me Satan. Especially when you're talking about guys who are always arguing about being the best. He's like, no, Jesus called me Satan. So you're desiring the things of man, not the things of God. Um, I mean, then we have the story today, which is his low point. I mean, the Bible is full. Peter's errors in particular are on full display. The Bible is carefully and intentionally written to purposefully show us that there is only one perfect one. Only one, right? Only Christ is perfect. No one else. And when we really stop to think about it every once in a while, does it make our, our facade that we try to do from time to time in front of one another and act like we don't suffer with stuff and we don't struggle with things and we don't have it? It just seems silly because the very basis of our faith assures us that's not true. But we have historically spent a lot of, in, uh, a lot of energy trying to do this very thing. Jude even says what? Now to the how many? One who is able to keep you from stumbling. And just to clue you in, it ain't you. It ain't me. There is one who is able to keep us from stumbling. In other words, we're gonna stumble on our own, amen? And those of us that have been walking with Jesus for any length of time know that to be the case, amen? Amen. So, this passage gives us Peter's low point, Peter's denial of Jesus three times. It's a story many of you may know really, really well. You may already have it all played out in your mind as I would have, but perhaps we've missed some subtle, huge details, so we're going to walk through it. The narrative is going to begin during Jesus' trial at the house of Caiaphas. I have some photos for you because we went there. Um, can we get those pictures up there? 
So this first picture, oh, they do wash out. That's better, though. So um, this first picture shows one of the courtyards here in this area. This would be the steps leading up to the house of Caiaphas that Jesus would have actually walked on. Those, are, those rocks were there, okay? So when Jesus was arrested, shackled, brought to trial, he went right up those steps from Gethsemane. Gethsemane's right over here, would have walked up the steps right here into Caiaphas' house. Let's go to the next picture. Take your time. There we go. So this here now is, and it's like this everywhere in Israel. All the, the holy, amazing spots where you're like, that's the real place. They built churches on top of everything. You guys know that, right? So there is a church here that's built on top of the place where Caiaphas' house was. Now inside, there are things that have been preserved and you can't really, they're roped off, stuff like that. But this is the area. If you'll go to the next photo, um, you'll see right here there's a statue that's been placed right here and you look here you have Peter in the front there's a guard in the back here's the servant girl here on the right what's on top of the pillar there's the rooster right so this is the, the idea is they believe that this is the area where this actually happened right here do we have one other picture I thought maybe there was one more even on the roof of the actual building there's a weather vane with a rooster on top of this so I show you this just because this is a real story it's good to remember that these are real places real people this actually took place amen everybody say real like say it's real it's real all right so now we're in this typical Roman villa okay so get rid of the church in your mind it's a house on this spot Typical Roman villa that has an inner courtyard, two-story on some of the nicer homes, courtyard in the middle, building goes around it, and you're talking about a March, April kind of a night, and that time of year, still cold in that area, would have definitely necessitated a warm fire for that time of night. So this is where they are. They're in the middle of this, war, or in the middle of this courtyard, the building's around. What's going on upstairs in the courtyard, or excuse me, in the building there? Jesus is on trial. Okay, so as Jesus is on trial, this story is taking place in the courtyard of that building, and people are there with fires built going on. So the trial's going on, this is what happens here, and among the people who have all gathered together to kind of see what's going on and, and, and hear maybe the gossip or see Jesus or whatever's going on, we find Peter. Verse 54 of chapter 14 says that Peter had followed from afar kind of laying back, watching what was going and making his way, but kind of not getting too close so he doesn't get mixed up any of it, but keeping an eye on Jesus and he's making his way. And so he finds his way into this particular courtyard. And now let's at least give Peter some credit. At least he went, right? Not a safe place to go for a follower of Jesus. Let's, before we just crush the guy, which we're going to do, like, let's give him some credit. At least he followed. Amen? Can we just give Peter some love? Everybody say Amen. All right, Peter, you got some love. Now, he's likely attempting to be really inconspicuous. He's trying to just blend in, doesn't want to stick out, and, but he can't stay hidden for very long. So in verse 66 of Mark 14, it says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, please understand, Galilee or Nazareth and Jerusalem at the high priest's house, worlds apart, okay? A Galilean who comes straight from the fishing villages and wanders right into the courtyard of the high priest, he's gonna stick out like a Duck Dynasty guy at a ballet, all right? Not his venue. So there's no way, some of you Duck Dynasty fans are laughing really hard at that. The rest of you are like, who? Anyway, um, 
this is, a, a, this is where he's at. He sticks out. He can't blend in for so long, right? He's kind of hidden. But then someone sees him. Someone notices who he is. And it's a young girl. It says, seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, you were also a Nazarene. Now, in that original language there, the word you is emphatic. It's an accusation. So the idea isn't like, were you one of them? It's you. You. You were one. It's an accusation and it's very emphatic what she's saying to him. This is just a slave girl. Recognizes him. You. You were one of them. And so he denies it, verse 68. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. This is Peter's first denial. Now, catch what he's saying here. There's two different words. Know and understand seem similar, but it's not redundant. They say two completely different things. One of them says to know, it means theoretical knowledge, like um, to be aware, to, to have just an awareness or an idea of something going on. The second one is to understand. It means more practical knowledge. And, and so this is what he's saying here. This is a complete and total denial, okay? He's saying, I do not know him or know anything about him. I have no clue what you're talking about. This is what he's saying. It's a massive denial, a massive denial. Now, again, remember, what's going on upstairs? Jesus is on trial, and he is owning up to his own identity. He's answering accusations and standing firm in the case of these accusations coming at him that he knows will result in not only his death, but his death by which he will carry the penalty for Peter's sin. So here's Peter upstairs on trial before Caiaphas, being honest and standing firm. And Peter's downstairs on trial before a little slave girl and wilting like a flower in the desert. I don't know nothing. I don't have a clue what you're talking about or who you're talking about. I don't know anything. I'm just cold. That's what he's saying. Two completely different trials. But it was emphatic what she said, and there's people around, so he wants to blend in. Now he's getting some attention maybe, so he withdraws. The word says in verse 68, So he withdrew, excuse me, yeah, verse 68. So he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. I wonder what what went through his mind. I mean, there would be an ark, if you will, gateway coming into the courtyard where they were. And so Peter now is kind of laying back, just hang out by the gate because he doesn't want to be around that right now. And he's just kind of seeing if he can lay back. And then he hears that crow, that rooster crow. I wonder what went through his mind. And you could argue as the text plays on that he doesn't even remember or realize some of this until later, but maybe he does. Does he know what he's doing right now? Is he already thinking, "Uh uh-oh, don't know. But the first denial happens, the rooster crows, and either way, Peter now withdraws to the courtyard entrance, and the story continues, and so does this girl. This girl's got what you'd call moxie. She is not leaving Peter alone. She is on him. And so it says in verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. And so think about it. The first accusation, I know you, you're one. Now she's involving other people. Hey, 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 he's one. He's one. So the attention is growing. The tension on Peter is growing. And so Peter denies again, verse 70. But again, he denied it. Now, the the original Greek here also gives us a little more insight than just he denied it. The tense here is imperfect, meaning continuous. In other words, Peter went off. 
he went off on, if you will, a rant to say, I don't, I don't know him. I told you over there I didn't know him. Now you're over here. Can you not just leave me by the gate? I don't know him. He's going off at the accusation of this little girl. It's too, it means denying is what he says. And then the third accusation, the second part of verse 70. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Okay, so the the first accusation, little girl towards Peter. Second accusation, little girl grabbing some people, he's one of them. Third accusation, everybody's on him now. Now everybody's pointing it out. Everybody's on his case. You are one of them. You are clearly a Galilean. Everyone's ganging up on him. And Peter's denial, number three, comes, verse 71 But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, there's two possibilities for what it means when it says curse. Now, when I was a little boy, there was nothing worse than cursing in my mom's house. Like, I don't know that I could have done anything that would have got me a whipping as fast as if I had said a curse word in mom's house. So one of the possibilities, and the one that I always go, he's in trouble, was that Peter is trying to look like to be like, to talk like the people there. And, and, try, and have you ever heard, like, have you ever gotten frustrated? I mean, none of you would have done that, but maybe you've seen it happen before, where a Christian, like, bangs his thumb or something like that and goes, beep, you know, says something he didn't really mean to, and then you get one of those kind of remarks from an unbelieving friend where they go, well, that wasn't very Christian of you. I mean, the way that we talk can define us in the eyes of other people, right? And so, so here's Peter. Maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe he's literally cursing to try to convince these people, look, I'm not a follower of him. Beep, whatever that case may be. That may have been the case. The other, op- uh, the other option, and some translations translate it this way too, is that he's calling down a curse on himself. Or in other words, he's swearing in the name of God is what he's doing. I swear to God, I don't know him. That's the other possibility. Now, when, when I first learned that that may be the other translation, I thought they were letting Peter off the hook. Like, oh, I thought he cussed. That would have been way worse. But when you really think about it, he's, he's swearing by the name of God that he doesn't know who? God. That's an emphatic denial. He's calling God as his witness that he doesn't know the one he's just spent three years with. It's a big deal. Either way, the third denial happens. And, and notice something. What does he call him when he makes the denial? I don't know this man of whom you speak. Peter denies Jesus three times without ever saying his name. Never says his name. Never makes it personal. Avoids it completely. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three denials. And immediately, verse 72, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. These are heavy, dark, emotional words. Peter remembers his proud declaration. Now think about this. Peter had made the declaration just before. He says, well, we can even look at it. It's just one page to the left. Verse 26, when they sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, what? I won't. I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then look, verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And so think about the irony here. Three times, 
because of the accusations of a little girl. While Jesus is standing firm in the face of deadly, deadly accusations going on up above, he's here before a little girl and adamantly saying, I don't know him. And the animal, if you will, that delivers the sound that Jesus said, this is what's going to tell you. You're going to remember this because before the rooster, what is a rooster even known for, right? Arrogant, boastful, proud. And so here's Peter. I will never deny you. Oops. And he's broken. He is broken when he realizes this. He is ashamed, guilty, scared, sorrowful, broken. I cannot overemphasize the, the, the heaviness of the word used when it says he was broken and he wept. He was destroyed. He was undone when he realized what had happened. So what do we do with that? What's the application for this? Well, first, let me tell you how I would have traditionally looked at this particular passage. Traditionally, I would have looked at this passage based off of Peter's arrogant boastfulness, but also over Jesus's words regarding denying himself. Jesus said some pretty harsh things about those who deny, him, those who deny Jesus, did he not? He said in Matthew chapter 10, 33, he says this, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a scary thing to hear, right? I can remember as a little kid thinking, man, well, you remember those, uh, those of you that are old enough, you remember the Left Behind movies that came out in the 70s, the cheesy ones where they had the numbers on their forehead and they were leading them to the guillotine at the very end and they're going to chop their heads off and all that? Scared me to death. I was like this old and they made us watch them in this Baptist church. I was terrified. And I can remember Hearing that verse, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father, and seeing that movie and going, I don't know. I, I, oh, and like being terrified. What if that happened to me? Would I have the guts as a kid to do that? It was horrifying to me. And so we think about that. It is a grievous thing to, would we all agree it's a grievous thing to deny Jesus? Would we all agree with that? Yeah, it's a grievous thing to deny Jesus. Would we agree that faithfulness to Jesus is important? Absolutely we would. And so we look at what happened to Peter. We understand what Jesus says here and the, the importance of being faithful to the one who has been so faithful to us. And so we look at this passage and say, okay, so how do we not go here? How do we not get sucked into the thing that Peter gets sucked into? How do we avoid this kind of stuff? And, and you, you can learn some things about this from the very text. So how do we do better than Peter in this? How do we prevent ourselves from going down that same kind of road? Well, well, number one, you could look at the fact in verse 54, as I told you before, it says that when Peter came, it says what? He followed where? Far off. He was following, but sort of back a little bit. And so we could talk about that. Like, you know what? E even in nature, don't we see like in, in Africa, the lions take the ones off the edge of the pack? And, and we could talk about the fact that, man, that there's those who, they are in, man, they are following Jesus and they're front row Joes right here. Well, <laughs> not tonight, but anyway, second row Joes. <laughs> here you go, give it up. <laughs> so you could talk about that, like, man, in and dedicated and I'm following close and I want to press in and be as close as I can. And that is a safe place to be when we're close to Jesus. Would we not all agree with that? So it's not a good idea to follow Jesus from afar. But, but not only that, in the same verse, it goes on to say, not only did he follow afar, but it, he comes to these, these enemies, this, this, if you will, the enemies of Jesus' courtyard, and he's warming himself by their fires. 
Like he's coming to their fires in their place where they're gathered to watch this heinous thing happen to Jesus. And he's finding shelter and comfort and warmth in that same place where they are. And so we could say, well, that's a good thing to learn too, right? If you want to be faithful to Jesus and not fall prey to this, to, to, to ending up like Peter did, then it's probably not a good idea to find ourselves finding our comfort and our warmth and putting our value and finding shelter in things of this world, whatever they might be. There's a lot of things in this world that we can go find shelter in, but doesn't the Bible say that he is our rock, that he is our fortress? That the person who stands on Jesus Christ and who does his word, though the storms come and the floods raise, the the person who built their house on the sand, it is gone, but the person who stands on the rock of Jesus Christ will persevere. Didn't it say that? Didn't Jesus say to Peter himself, upon this rock I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not stand against it? Didn't he say that too? So we'd say, man, it's a dangerous thing to go warm yourself by the fires of the world around us. And, and then finally, you could just look at Peter in the end. He's just, he's just trying to blend in. Like He's trying to just blend in, doesn't want to stand out. Next thing you know, he's even trying to talk like them, calling down curses. I don't know him. Just trying to blend. That's a dangerous thing when we set our hearts to want to be like the world. Amen? We're not to be like the world. We are countercultural as Christians. Amen? Next week, we will talk about how we engage the culture with Christianity but as people, are we not to be countercultural, holy, set apart, scriptures say? Yes. Yes, we are. And so that's how I would approach that text for a long, long time. That we, we, we don't want to go down that road. And to avoid that, this is what we need to do. Don't follow Jesus from afar, man. Press in. Don't warm yourself by the enemy's fires. Don't go to the world for comfort, protection, warmth, whatever that is. Don't try to be like the world. Try to be like Jesus. That's what we want to be. Here's Peter blending in when Jesus is upstairs standing apart. That's who you want to be, Peter. Is that helpful? There's some good stuff in that, right? That'll preach, right? Is it true? There's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. Is it right in this text? I don't know. I have a hard time believing, and I've taught this this way, okay? But I have a hard time believing that that's the point that we should pull out of this story. Let me tell you why. You guys need to know this. If Heritage is your church, you are going to a church that even on its banners says gospel-centered church. And here's a great opportunity to understand the difference and why we say this. You need to understand this, okay? There's a difference between moralistic teaching and gospel-centered teaching. It's a big difference. So, So here's what it is. Moralistic teaching teaches us how we should be or how we shouldn't be and what we do to get there. Okay, so moralistic teaching says, don't be like this, be like this, and here's what you do to get there. Gospel-centered teaching, or a gospel understanding doesn't do this. A gospel understanding is very blunt about where we are and what Jesus has done because of where we are. And it's a big difference. Now, catch this. Moralistic teaching would say, don't be like this, be like this, and here's what you do to be like that. And there might be true, good things in there, but a gospel understanding starts with, this is where we are, 
And here's what Jesus has come to do because of where we are. So think about it. Think about it like this. Why in the world would we take as the primary takeaway, lesson, application, if you will, from this story, why would we make the primary application for this story the one thing Jesus promised Peter he had no shot at actually doing? Doesn't that seem silly? He said to all of his disciples, you're all going to scatter. None of you will remain perfectly faithful. None of you. He assures them of it. And when Peter's like, not me, I'm going to be different, he goes, Peter, you don't get it, man. You don't understand your own weakness. You don't understand. So, so for us to take a moralistic approach to this and say the thing we should take away from this text is don't be like Peter, how arrogant to think that I would be different than Peter in that situation. Oh, you read the stories of the martyrs, man, God has given incredible grace to men and women in situations like this, but I don't believe for a minute it's because they had that in their nature. I believe that's the work of God in their lives, in a specific moment, giving them specific grace. Have you been through something hard before and found yourself instantly relying on the faith of Jesus and you just knew that's not because of me, that was the grace of God that put me there because I didn't want to be? I know a lot of people in that kind of situation. That's the difference between them. Moralistic teaching, we say, don't be like Peter. Be different than Peter, and here's how you not be like Peter. But you know what a gospel understanding, a gospel-centered approach to this text says? I'm Peter. I'm Peter. I mean, in our gatherings here on Wednesday nights, our goal is to look at the text and go, what is it that Jesus is doing? How is he leading his disciples? What are they doing? How is he growing them as they follow him? And the idea is that we are disciples looking to Jesus for the answer, not looking to Peter and going, well, I'm not going to do that. But instead we go, if I'm in this story, man, I'm Peter. If at best, I might be the guy that just ran and went nowhere near Caiaphas's house, frankly. That's a gospel approach to this. Who among us is faithful? The Bible says not one. And so to make our main application, that very thing seems wrong. Seems wrong. Now, here's the point of the gospel. Will you put this, this verse up? 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he what? Look at it. He cannot what? Deny himself. The point of the gospel is not that I can be faithful and be better than Peter. The point of the gospel is that in spite of my faithlessness, he is faithful. It's not that, man, Jeff is faithful because he did not deny me. No, it says I am faithless, but he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's the point of the gospel. And you go, well, but wait a minute now. Jesus did say that about those who deny him, he will deny them before the Father. And it is a grievous thing. This is a bad sin that Peter does, right? And we would all say without question, what? Yes, it's a horrible sin. But, but what else does the Bible say? We just spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians, over a year and a half, or in Corinthians in general. 1 Corinthians says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not just those that deny Jesus that are left outside the door of the kingdom of God. It's 
everyone is left outside the door of the kingdom of God because none of us in ourselves possess the ability to earn the favor of God. None of us. But praise God, the very next verse in 1 Corinthians says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Even in that, he says, and that's who you were until Jesus did something. That's the gospel. That's the point of this story. The defining event in any story, especially this one, is never our faithfulness, ever in the scriptures. The defining event is that Jesus rose from the grave, that he was faithful to do what God had sent him to earth to do, that then he rose from death after paying the punishment for our sin, was faithful and powerful over sin. What he does is the defining moment in our lives, not what we do by any stretch of the imagination. Look, I can't defeat sin, and I can't raise from the dead, but Jesus can. And so rather than going, so here's what I need to do so that I stay faithful and so that I don't do this, maybe instead I need to look to the one who has been faithful on my behalf. That's the point. Peter's sin is awful, but what does Romans sound? Where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds more. Grace abounds more. So you'd say, well, okay, Jeff, but look, you yourself, you sound a little wishy-washy because you would have taught it one way a while back. Now you're teaching it a different way right now. How do you know that that's the issue? How do you know Jesus isn't upset with Peter? How do you know? Well, I can prove, and some of you have seen this before, that the emphasis here is on the grace of Jesus and not the failure of Peter. And to do so, I'm going to have to fast forward and ruin either me or Sam's teaching here in a couple of weeks. But in Mark chapter 16, look at it. And if you have a pen, get it out. Because if I don't even care if you never write in your Bible, you're writing in your Bible tonight. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and then what does it say? Let's try that again. But go, tell his disciples, and then what does it say? And Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee, to, excuse me, to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Look, is Peter a disciple? So why is he being redundant? God's a good writer. Every word is in scripture on purpose. There are no accidents. It is God-breathed, inspired word of God. When Jesus says, or when this angel says, hey, go tell the disciples that Jesus rose again, who would that include? Peter. But why is Peter singled out? Because Jesus knows. Where's Peter right now? He's broken. He's weeping. He is destroyed. And he remembers the teachings of Jesus that say, if you deny me, I will deny you. And apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, he is ruined. But Jesus rose from the grave. And Jesus defeated that very sin. In fact, 
think of it. It's not just that Jesus is, it, it, that when Peter sinned, Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew. He told him in, in advance, you're going to blow it. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came. Because we, like Peter, blow it over and over and over. But he is faithful. And so he's saying, go tell the disciples, and hey, find Peter. Find Peter, because he's a wreck right now. And he thinks what he's done has probably excluded him from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. But what he doesn't understand is it's his faithful, faithlessness. That's why Jesus came in the first place. You go tell him, Jesus rose again. Sin is dead. Jesus won. He's alive. Go get Peter. And that's us. We are Peter. And we blow it over and over and over and over. Is there a place for learning and understanding the morality of Scripture and wanting to grow and wanting to live another way? Absolutely, but we never, ever, ever start there. We start with the understanding that apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what we try to do. It'll never pay off. And it's the very understanding of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ that is the motivation and the power to change anyway. Only the gospel changes. You guys know that, right? Self-effort will never change us. We will always be the failure, Peter. Only the gospel changes us. And that's how we are to look at the scriptures. Understand, we are fallen, but we serve a king who is incredibly gracious and good and powerful over sin. Amen? And he's forgiven you too. So let's stand up and thank him. God, we are so thankful for the freedom that you give us through your gospel. Lord, if we were to approach these texts strictly from what we have to do, this would be a grievous time every time we get together. Because Lord, you're growing us, I pray, and we are being sanctified. We're getting closer and closer. We're, we're, we're being drawn and, and, and molded into your image more and more, but we have so far to go, and your, your scripture promises us that when we see you, we will be like you. So until that day, we're flawed and we're fallen and we're broken. We're Peter. We are so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful, God, for those two words, and Peter. I'm so thankful for the understanding that it's those who have blown it the most that your grace abounds for. Not, not only that, but that you seek us, God. You're not waiting on Peter to clean himself up before he comes back to you, but you are pursuing him because you know he's fallen, you know he is broken, and you know how much he needs you. And I'm thankful for that because I'm Peter, and I need you, Lord. We all need you. I thank you, Lord, that... Though we struggle with faithfulness, but you are faithful still. I thank you, Lord, that you cannot deny yourself. I thank you, God, that your love for us does not change with the weather or with our actions or depending on mood, but that, God, your love for us is perfect and complete, casting out fear. And God, I just pray that as we set our eyes upon you, Jesus, and the fullness of your glory as displayed in the gospel, that that, Lord, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold you, that's when we become like you, as we behold your glory and the goodness of your gospel. So may we keep our eyes fixed upon your grace and your goodness, and may you change us by the power of your spirit and through the good news of your gospel. 
God, will you bless everyone here as they go home tonight? Will you take them home safe? I pray, God, you would grant all of them rest. And I pray that tomorrow as they go about their day, wherever it may lead them, that they might go knowing without question that they are absolutely approved of by you, that the failures that Satan wants to use to separate us from you are the very reason that you came, that you love them perfectly, that even while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And may we walk with confidence in the understanding of the truth of your gospel. And may that empower us to live for you to a greater and greater degree. We thank you for your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Go in grace. Remember next week, we're going to have the big church gathering. And Sunday, we'll see you guys either for a little one-week topical thing or we'll be in Galatians. God bless you guys.